my immediate thought was, this would be really cool, right? If monarchs could take advantage of this and actually make choices based on their infection and use medicinal plants when they are infected. And we're going to welcome you all today to a gastronaut seminar. For those of you that have been with us previously, thanks for joining us again and for your commitment to gastronauts. But for those of you who are new to gastronauts and just tuning in, we're so happy to have you join our community. So here at Gastronauts, our ambition is to foster a discussion and the spread of knowledge on all things gut brain. My name is Elise, and if the accent doesn't give it away, I'm tuning in to you from Adelaide in Australia, and I am joined by my amazing co-host, Peter. So we're going to be your host today, and we have an amazing speaker joining us, Dr. Yarp Darud. I'm going to ask Peter to introduce our amazing speaker. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thank you, Elise. Uh, so today we have Dr. Yarp Darud. He is a professor of biology at Emory University, and he received his PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And his laboratory studies the ecology and evolution of infectious disease. Much of his research focuses on the monarch butterfly, and he has studied how monarch butterflies can identify specific milkweed species as medication, as well as the genetic, developmental, and evolutionary basis behind differential migratory patterns in monarch butterflies. So please give a warm welcome to our speaker, Dr. Jop Darud. Thank you so much, and uh, thanks for that, that that introduction. It's really nice being here. This sounds like a really great community, and uh, we were just chatting about this earlier. And um, I think monarch butterflies they they eat and they have guts and they have brains. So I think we can uh, we we can make this work today and really start thinking about how how these monarchs deal with their parasites. So. As Peter said, a lot of my work focuses on infectious diseases in monarch butterflies, and that's in fact why I started working on monarchs. But since I started working on them, I also became interested in a lot of other questions that can be answered using this fascinated system, fascinating system, and that includes the, the, the migration that they undertake every year. Monarchs are very popular here in North America because they undertake this spectacular migration from Canada and the United States every year to overwintering sites in Mexico where literally up to hundreds of millions of monarchs come together and they hide out there for months on end to essentially not get frozen um, and die in Northern North America and really, you know, survive that winter. And then in spring, they start mating and they start migrating north again. And when you go there, these are some pictures I've taken when visiting the overwintering sites in Mexico. It's just really fascinating to see these hundreds of thousands of monarchs really clustering together in the trees. I mean, the sun breaks through, they, they, they go out of the trees, start flying around for a really spectacular. What brought me to the monarchs is this very beautiful parasite called Ophiocystis electroscara. This is a parasite. It's a protozoan parasite. It's in the phylum of apicomplexum parasites, where it sits together with things such as malaria parasites, plasmodium, as well as toxoplasma, cryptosporidium. And this parasite is very specific to monarch butterflies. It's a really great parasite because it's very amenable to study. So you can just grab the butterfly um, and don't let your, you know, your mother or your grandparents tell you can't do that. Monarchs are very strong. 
they don't die when you pick them up. And you can put a sticker on their abdomen, pull it off. And then using a very simple dissection scope, you can essentially see if that monarch is infected. And so it's a non-invasive way of telling whether a monarch is sick or not. An individual monarch can carry millions of these parasites. And one parasite is enough to initiate an infection in a, in a caterpillar. And so that means that, you know, for our work in our lab, we have to be very, very careful of very contagious parasites between monarchs, and uh, but also very amenable because we can inoculate caterpillars with a single parasite and that causes an infection. And what makes this system really intriguing, you know, for me as an eco, you know, evolutionary ecologist, trying to understand how parasites and hosts interact with each other within an ecological context is that a lot of the ecology in the system is captured by the milkweeds, which are the host plants of the monarch butterfly. So monarch caterpillars are specialist feeders on milkweeds, mostly in the genus Asclepias, and they cannot use anything else. Well, within the Asclepias, um, within the milkweeds, there are multiple species they use. Monarchs use about 30 different species, but beyond that, they cannot use anything else. And these milkweeds are very intriguing because they have a class of secondary chemicals that all talk about when we talk about the medicinal effects of these plants. So the parasite is very detrimental to monarchs. These parasites form on the abdomen of the butterfly. They form where normally the scales develop. And what that means is essentially that these parasites disrupt the integuments of the abdomen of the butterfly. And this butterfly is so heavily infected that it really loses all its uh, body fluids. It gets stuck to its pupil case. And so this butterfly will never fly. It will never mate, it will never lay eggs, right? So the direct fitness of this butterfly is gone. It's essentially completely down the drain. The interesting thing here is that this parasite is actually reliant on the monarch to survive, lay eggs, um, and thereby get spread. So there is really interesting questions. That's what brought me to the system in the first place. How do parasites balance this in an evolutionary context? Now, on the one hand, parasite growth increases transmission. On the other hand, it can kill the host before the transmission can take place. That was really the question that brought me to the system in the first place. When we look at the life cycle of, of the parasite, let's start with the life cycle of monarchs. So monarchs lay eggs and then the eggs hatch, caterpillars come out. Now monarchs go through five different instars and then they turn into pupae. And under lab conditions in our greenhouse, it then takes about nine days for the pupa to turn into a new emerging adult. Now, if this monarch was infected, so say that butterfly up there had these parasites, that butterfly would carry hundreds of thousands to millions of this parasite. And what happens is when the female lays an egg, that some of the parasites will simply get stuck to the egg, they will get stuck to the milkweed, and then the caterpillars eat them up. And then they break open these parasites in the midgut, the parasites go into the tissues, they start replicating. And then at the end of the pupal stage, they form these big dormant spores again that cover the outside of the butterfly. So it's mostly from, from, from females to their offspring, but um, adult males can also transmit parasites either to females during mating, which she then transmits to her offspring, or the males can leave the parasites on the plants where they get eaten up by caterpillars as well. So as I said, you know, what is, what is really intriguing about this system is that these monarchs use milkweeds, they're specialist feeders on these milkweeds. And so when I was doing this research, really starting to think beyond, you know, the costs and benefits of parasite growth for the parasite's host fitness, was really thinking, or the parasite's system, was really thinking about the host fitness and how do hosts actually protect themselves against these parasites. And one of the ways that they could potentially do is 
is through the milkweeds that they use, because these milkweeds different. So as a postdoc, before I started my own lab, I started an experiment where I compared two different milkweed species that are very amenable to growing in the greenhouse. So it's the swamp milkweed and Asclepius curasafica, which is tropical milkweed. And what I did is feed these plants to both uninfected monarchs and monarchs that I infected with one of four different parasite clones. And then I would rear them up and see how long these monarchs lived. And so when we look at these uninfected monarchs with this particular comparison, the monarchs lived equally long as adults, regardless of the species of milkweed they were reared on. But for the infected ones, there was a very big difference. The monarchs that were infected and reared on curasavica plants, they lived much longer as adults than those reared on the swamp milkweed Asclepius incarnata. Of course, we can see that overall the lifespan was reduced compared to uninfected monarchs. We already knew that, but the difference um, between the infected monarchs on the two host plants was really quite large. Those are big effect sizes. Now, why is that? When we look at the relationship between the lifespan and parasite load, so this is for the four different parasite clone means, is that um, so on incarnata, um, or so this is curasafica. Here you have low parasite loads, therefore the monarchs live longer. On incarnata, the parasite does better, grows up to higher populations, and the monarchs don't live as long. So somehow these plants, this curasafica plant, the tropical milkweed, can reduce parasite infection and thereby alleviate the disease symptoms in the monarch butterfly. Now, why is that? So monarchs are not just famous for their migration, they're also famous for their warning coloration. So they have the classic orange and black and white that tells predators that they're toxic. And so a lot of predators will actually leave monarchs alone, especially after they taste them for the first time. And monarchs are toxic. They're advertising toxicity because they take up chemicals from the milkweeds called cardenolides. And these are cardioglycosides, so toxins that are really toxic to most animals. Monarchs are resistant to them. And what, what's worse from the plant's point of view is they're really using this, this defense for their own defense. And um, so classic experiments done by the late Lincoln Brower in the 1960s, what he would do is rear monarchs on different milkweeds and then feed these monarchs to blue jays and then measure how long it took for the blue jays to throw up. And it turns out when you rear monarchs on more toxic plants, the blue jays will throw up more quickly because the monarchs are more toxic because of taking up these chemicals. So we started looking at these same chemicals too, and this has been work in collaboration with Mark Hunter over a long period. And the first thing we did for this experiment was really looking at the overall concentrations of these cardenolites in curasafica that reduced that parasite growth and incarnata, which did not. We can see the overall concentration in the curasafica plants is much greater than in the incarnata plants. You can also look at the particular cardenolite compounds in these plants. And we can do this using UPLC and look at the degree of polarity. And every compound has a certain level of polarity, how, how charged it is, essentially. And then we can see that when we look at the incarnata plants in this experiment, we only found two different compounds. 100% of the plants have one compound, 20% of the second compound. When you look at the curasafica plants that reduce parasite infection, you can see a great diversity of these compounds. Not only is the overall concentration higher, it consists of a lot of different compounds, some of which may really be involved in protection against parasites. Now, over the years, we have done a lot more experiments on milkweeds. You know, this was just a one-by-one -one comparison, but we can look across a lot of different species. And we have looked across, in experience, across 12 different species, found similar effects. This particular experiment here, what we did is look at these five different species. And what we can look at is a measure of non-polarity. 
um, which is believed to be related with toxicity. So the more nonpolar these compounds are, we think they're more toxic because they're more easily going across cell membranes in, in animals. And so when we look at the lifespan of uninfected butterflies here, we can see that these cardenolites are actually detrimental to monarchs. So high concentration or high non-polarity is actually bad for monarchs. They start living shorter as adults. But at the same time, the higher non-polarity is bad for the parasite. So this is the spore load of infected butterflies. And so when you then look at the lifespan of infected butterflies, you can really see this balance, right? So there's benefits of the cardenolites in terms of killing the, well, we don't have to kill the parasite, but providing protection against the parasites, but there's cost in terms of reducing lifespan. So at some intermediate level of toxicity, that's where monarchs have the greatest so I remember when we did these experiments, those initial experiments showing these big differences between the milkweeds, my immediate thought was, this would be really cool, right? If monarchs could take advantage of this and actually make choices based on their infection and use medicinal plants when they are infected. And so we had two hypotheses at the time. And the first is that largely preferentially consume antiparasitic milkweed. If you gave them a choice, a diet choice between the medicinal plant, the Carisavica plant, and the Incarnata plant, which is not medicinal, the prediction would be they should eat more of the medicinal plant. But the second hypothesis, which I actually at the time thought was more likely, is that the adults make the choices for their caterpillars. And the reason for this is that caterpillars of monarchs don't actually move that much. So the egg is laid on a plant by an adult, and then the caterpillars essentially stuck there for a long time. And that's where all the feeding happens. So it's really the mothers that make a lot of the choices for what their offspring are going to do. So the second hypothesis here was that adult females, when they are infected, preferentially lay their eggs on the antiparasitic plant. So we did experiments, um, and these experiments were, were done by Thierry Lefebvre, a postdoc in my lab, Lindsay Oliver, an undergraduate student in our lab. Um, and so what they did was rear caterpillars on a third species of milkweed, Ascalibus tuberosa, and it gave them a choice between these two different species, medicinal and non-medicinal milkweed, and um, essentially that meant, you know, keeping track of how much they ate of the two species throughout their life. The result was utterly boring, right? This is, this is the general finding when you do science. You know, you have great ideas and at the end, the result is boring. At least it was clear. And, uh, <laughs> but what this showed is that these caterpillars don't care at all. 50% of the diet comes from one species, 50% from the other. Um, and that's true whether they're infected or uninfected. So for the second set of experiments, we then looked at adult monarchs. And so what we did in our greenhouse, we set up big cages, big flight cages. We put the medicinal plant in there, the non-medicinal plant. Monarchs were then released in there. So these monarchs had been mated. Female monarchs were either infected or uninfected. And you leave them in there and then simply count the number of eggs that the monarchs lay um, over the course, in this case, of two hours. In this case, the results were much more interesting is that the infected monarchs had a high preference for the medicinal plant. This is the proportion of the eggs that they laid on the medicinal plant. For every single egg that the monarch laid, when she was infected, she was twice more likely to lay that egg on the medicinal plant than the non-medicinal plant. And um, so what's interesting about this to me is that I, I told you before that these monarchs have these parasites. They are born with them as adults. They cannot get rid of them. And our experience also suggests that caterpillars cannot medicate themselves. But what this suggests to me is that these monarchs, these, these adults, these females can really make choices, overposition choices, 
that give their offspring a really good chance against this parasite. Right? By laying their, their eggs on these medicinal plants, they reduce infection, they reduce parasite growth, and thereby alleviate the disease in their offspring. And um, so this is, this is different from kind of the classic ideas of, of self-medication in animals, right? Where, where the word self indicates that, that animals medicate themselves. This is really an example where it is more like a parental or a SIP or a, you know, a kind of a kin selection driven form of medication where it helps to treat your offspring in this case, instead of yourself. I do wanna mention uh, an, a dimension of research that we have started recently in our lab. And that is to start thinking about the microbiome in these monarch caterpillars. And especially when you think about this parasite being ingested by the monarchs before it can initiate an infection. And that really would suggest that these parasites are in that gut environment. They're not only interacting with the chemicals that come from the plants, but they're also interacting with the microbes that are in that gut before they can actually get to the integuments of the butterfly. So we started this work, and this was driven by Erica Harris, a graduate student in my lab, where we fed caterpillars on different plants, then collected their frass, and then isolated the microbes from the frass, and then fed those microbes to recipient caterpillars. So what I start with here with are the, the control caterpillars. So we either reared caterpillars on the curacevica, the medicinal plants, or the incarnata, the non-medicinal plants. And what we see here is what we saw before. So when monarchs are reared and infected, on incarnata, they have higher parasite, uh, parasite loads. When they're reared on curosavica plants, you can see a reduction in the parasite growth. Now then what we can do is we can take the microbes from monarchs that are fed on the non-medicinal plant, feed those microbes that to monarchs that are also fed on a non-medicinal plant. That doesn't result in anything interesting. There is no reduction in parasite load. But if we take microbes from monarchs that were fed on the medicinal plant and feed those microbes to monarchs fed on the non-medicinal plant, we can see a reduction in parasite load. And this is quite intriguing because that level of parasite growth is similar to the level that you have for monarchs that are reared for the entire life on that medicinal milkweed, right? So somehow we can recreate the medicinal properties of milkweed by transplanting the microbes from monarchs reared on that medicinal plant to monarchs that weren't reared on that medicinal plant to start with. Right now we're analyzing um, these results and, and really starting to think about the microbiome. So this is an initial analysis we did on the overall microbial composition in the mid-guts of these caterpillars in this experiment. And what we can see is that there is a higher overall diversity in the monarchs reared on the medicinal plant. Now, when we look at the microbiome of the monarchs that got the microbes from the non-medicinal plant-reared caterpillars, we see very low diversity. But the monarchs that really got those medicinal effects through the microbes, we can see that their microbiomes are much more diverse and, and close to being as diverse as the monarchs reared on that medicinal plant themselves. So this really suggests that there is a role for these microbes in driving some of these medicinal effects that we see in this particular system. All right. So I think I'm going to leave it at that. Um, and I hope I have covered, you know, food and the gut and the, my, the, the gut microbes a little bit. Um, just want to thank all the people that have been involved in this work over the years, as well as our funding agencies, and very happy to uh, start the discussion. Thank you. I have so many questions. All righty, gonna... so you can just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just fire away. So um, I'm curious, why monarchs? I think this is one thing I was thinking of. Like, there are so many species of butterflies. Why, why did you choose monarchs in particular? 
there's a lot more species than butterflies too, right? And yeah. uh, monarch, monarchs are very popular species. A lot of people really like them. Of course, they're very yeah. popular here in North America because of their migration they undertake. So they're studied by a lot of people. They're known by a lot of people. Even in the Netherlands where I'm from, they get used for all sorts of advertisement campaigns that have nothing to do with butterflies. I mean, they don't even occur in the Netherlands. So why do we use them? Mm-hmm. The, the reason I study monarchs is because they become sick. And they become sick with a really interesting parasite. Um, I did my PhD on parasites and host-parasite interactions and trying to understand parasite evolution. And I used the lab system of laboratory mice and uh, malaria that wasn't really a natural system. And I really wanted to study a natural system. And um, so I stuck with the parasites and was looking for a host that you can study both in the lab and in the field. And monarch butterflies happen to have a really exciting parasite. So that's that's why. Great. Would you yeah. say that that's your favorite parasite then? No. Do you have one? Not. Yeah, I do. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, got, I got asked this question at a uh, potluck recently, and I'm sure the person who asked me, who was not a scientist, uh, kind of regretted that she asked me that question. But I... <laughs> Because I kept on going on about it. But I think my favorite parasite is Toxoplasma. Oh, it, it's actually related to the to malaria parasites that I studied for my PhD, but also the parasite in monarchs, which is apicomplexum parasites, so the same phylum of parasites. But I just think Toxoplasma is so intriguing with its complex life cycle and the way it changes the behavior of its hosts to really uh, maximize its transmission opportunities. So... I think maybe if I were to go back to beginnings, I may may have decided to study Toxo. Yeah, I think that was an interesting question that you brought up, Elise, about um, why study the monarch butterfly, right? Why study butterflies? I think Mm. I'm a graduate student. I came in, I was like, people just study mice, primates, rats, right? I didn't even give much thought. And I was like, oh, you know, I think the pitch is like, oh, they're very genetically similar to humans. It's a model system. Um, But it's interesting hearing your perspective, Dr. Darude, about we're looking more at a condition rather than a particular system that is genetically similar. Um, And I think, wow, you know, there are probably so many other systems that we haven't even bothered to explore yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that field is just so exciting yeah and i think what i like about studying monarchs is that they're not a model system for for say humans and so you know one of the benefits is what i like about science is very basic science questions that you can address in the system but there's also not the temptation to portray it as a model system when you know it actually isn't and when i worked on lab mice with malaria parasites that were not the natural parasite of the mice it was often tempting to say it was a medically relevant model, which is to some extent true, but at the same time, there's also light years between that particular host parasite interaction and the paras- human malaria parasites in real human populations. But that meant it, it became harder to publish my papers, but it's truer to the basic science that I, that I personally really like. I wanted to ask one final question to close out, um, and I was excited to see that you have been really involved in outreach, um, and you've been uh, giving a lot of TED Ed talks. Uh, you have even had high school students uh, go with you to explore evolutionary biology. And I was wondering what the motivation behind doing this is, and why why did you feel it was important to promote this idea? Yeah, I think you know, in in some ways, it's it's really this idea of of basic science and giving people an understanding of the natural world and 
really opening people's eyes to both, you know, how cool the natural world is. And, you know, there's always this philosophical aspect of me that wants to preserve the biological world and just understanding it helps you doing that. But also to show to people that, hey, you know, science may sound very unapproachable, but if you have a very charismatic system with relatively straightforward experiments, you know, you can make it understandable and also show to people, hey, you can do this kind of work because you know one of the things that I that I that I like to tell people when we do this work is that you think about our medication studies. All we had to be able to do was count, right? Just count the number of eggs on the two plants. Everyone can do that, and and um, I think that's important. That not all science relies on really difficult techniques or you know models or this and that. That that you know when you have very simple, straightforward experiments that you could essentially do as part of a science fair, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's important to, to show that to people. So I, yeah, I just, you know, I, I think we all to some extent have, you know, we talk about this a lot, this, this imposter syndrome. And I think every scientist has that to some extent and always this question, oh, you know, do, am I smart enough for this? Do I really belong this? And I think the more we can tell people that, Hey, there's everyone can do science, you know, I think that's really important to try to to get people to understand that and to get them into the field. And then, as I said, also to then say, you know, the more we understand about the natural world, hopefully that also means the more we are willing to protect it. That's awesome. Um, and a really uplifting ending. Um, I think I learned a ton about monarch butterflies and self-medications. Um, and I am very excited to learn more and continue following your work. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much Dr. Durud. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Gastronauts podcast. For more Gastronauts content, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at gutbrainmatters or visit our website, thinkgastronauts.com. The Gastronauts podcast would be impossible without the incredible team that we have here. Alam Koss is our producer and audio editor. Meredith Schmel is our theme music composer. And special thanks to Gastronauts director, Dr. Maya Kalber, and the founders of Gastronauts, Dr. Diego Bajorquez and the Bajorquez Laboratory. Thank you.